Well, as the kids leave and the remnant remains, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Second Peter, the book of Second Peter, near the end of the New Testament, just a few books away from Revelation at the back. Second Peter. As Andrew mentioned, we've been making our way through Peter's two letters, his two epistles, and last week we finished up his first letter, and this morning, read on cue, we begin his second, Second Peter chapter 1. A few years ago, Psychology Today published an article entitled, Can You Spot Ten Signs of a Childish Adult? And this article was written by Susan Heitler, a Harvard-graduated clinical psychologist, And she began the article by saying this. In my clinical practice, I primarily treat folks struggling with depression and anxiety, excessive anger, and marriage difficulties. Very often, an underlying issue, she continued, is that for one reason or another, the client never quite grew up. So many people reach chronological adulthood, she continues, without having mastered the core elements of adult emotional functioning. And she goes on in the article to list, as the title promises, 10 evidences of emotional childishness or emotional immaturity. And here's just a sample. She says, emotional escalations can be a litmus test for maturation. Whereas children often cry or get mad and pout, adults, or at least most, do not do that. Blaming. Children tend to blame others when things go wrong, whereas adults look to fix the issue. Lies. When uncomfortable, children might lie, whereas adults tend to deal with reality and speak the truth. Impulsivity. Children strike out when hurt or mad, seemingly without thinking, just by instinct, whereas adults, mature adults anyway, thoughtfully restrain themselves. And the article continued. Essentially, in her time as a psychologist, this author, this psychologist, has has seen many people who look like adults on the outside, but internally, and emotionally speaking at least, are very much immature children. In her words, for one reason or another, they never quite grew up. We rightly expect children to grow up. We've come to expect that. We rightly expect that. We expect them to mature and develop at a particular rate, along an expected trajectory, with predictable results. So much so that when there's some sort of arrested development, when it doesn't take place, it can oftentimes be a reason for concern or certainly action on our part when we don't see that predicted maturation. And we need to understand that what's expected for physical children, it won't surprise us to know that God expects that for his spiritual children as well. Those who are adopted into his family, he expects them to mature. And the Bible contains multiple calls to spiritual maturity. I'm sure if we polled us, we could come up with a number of those calls. Paul, when writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says this, When I was a child, I acted like a child. I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child, he says. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. There's this maturation. Then only a chapter later, in the same letter, he says, Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children, but in your thinking be adults. There's this maturation applied in the Christian life. Or take the author of the book of Hebrews. He scolds his audience for their lack of maturity. They were stunted, and so he waves his apostolic finger in their face and says, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching of righteousness. So this call for growth, this maturation that the Bible places on believers. Once we are saved, once we are justified, once we trust Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of our souls and eternal life, we are to be on a path of growth, of development that the Bible puts before us. Once we are adopted into the family, we are to grow into mature sons and daughters of the Almighty God. And as Peter begins this second letter, as I'm sure you found it by now, this is exactly the topic that he strikes out to tackle. Now, if we zoom out for a moment and catch the, a glimpse of the entire book of Second Peter, there's three chapters, and, and the point of his writing, the reason he put pen to parchment in the first place, his, his place is found in, second, in the second chapter. False teachers had come into the church, and he wants to warn the congregation. He says, watch out for those wolves. Be aware, root them out, get rid of them, deal with them. And chapter 3, related to that, he says, now look to the future and the blessed hope that we have. But in chapter 1, before he gets to that main point, he's preparing his, his audience to hear that truth about false teachers. And so he turns to the issue of maturity. And we can right away see how those two things are connected. Right? If you grow up in the faith, if you mature, if you develop as you should, you will be prepared to do what I'm going to call you to do in chapter 2, which is to see those false teachers, root them out, and get rid of them. But if you're immature... Bible says, you are tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine. And so we see as he prepares to get to that main thrust of the book, in chapter 1, he is calling for maturity. Now, if you look at verse 1, before we get to that topic, he greets them. As in most uh, biblical letters, there's a greeting and an identification of the author and the audience. He says in verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So we notice right away from that greeting that we're dealing with believers here. He's writing to Christians, right? Those who have received a faith like ours. Who's the ours? The apostles, probably. Those who have received the faith like the apostles. So we're dealing with Christians, redeemed people who have received that precious truth. And before we move on, just notice here what might be the most clear and succinct proclamation of the divinity of Jesus Christ in all of the New Testament. Where Peter says, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's just a declaration. Jesus is not only our Savior, through his atonement on the cross and his resurrection, but he's also our God. This is how he greets these believers. And he's about to tell them, it's time to grow up. But he greets them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now as we come to verse 3, and verse 3 down to verse, verse 11, which is where we'll stop this morning, this is where Peter turns his attention and encourages his readers to pay attention to their Christian growth. And he begins by discussing the resources that God has provided for that purpose. God has not called us to grow up in the faith and then just left us to figure it out. He said, grow up and now wing it. No, he has provided us resources, and that's what we find in the first couple of verses of this section. The first resource that we find that God has given us to grow up in the faith is the true knowledge of himself. Verse 3. It's knowing who he is. His divine power has given us 
everything we need for a godly life. Notice the sufficiency of that. He has given us everything we need for a godly life. Through, and here comes the vehicle of it, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So what do we need for a godly life? We need to know who God is because he is not only our motivation but our goal as well. We are becoming increasingly like Christ. We are growing in godliness and he has shown himself to us. His self-revelation, his self-disclosure is one of the resources that he has given to us to grow up in the faith. And we want to heed those. We want to cling on to those, not only because we want a, a picture of who God is, but also because, again, we want that motivation. The more we know who God is, the more we want to be like him. Now we ask the question, okay, how has God revealed himself? He says he's, he's revealed himself. Self-disclosure. How has that happened? Well, the Bible gives us a number of avenues. We know in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. You know, so in some way, he has revealed himself in creation, but more specifically and more exactly in some ways, he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ or the incarnate word. He's revealed himself to us in his written word, and he's revealed himself to us by his Holy Spirit. The Spirit is coming, and he will testify to all things concerning myself. We know that uh, God came in Hebrews chapter 1, and he is the perfect representation of God. So when we saw Jesus, we saw God. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we know that the written word also is breathed out by God. It is an extension of who he is, and by that we can pursue maturity. And so he has gone to great lengths to make himself known to us. And sometimes I think, as New Testament believers, living in the day and age we do, we sometimes take that for granted. That God has revealed himself. He is a God that wants to be known by us. He's provided us that resource so that we can mature as we are supposed to. God's self-revelation is indispensable for Christian maturity. Now, some try to pit these two things against one another. They will say, you got to choose between knowing God and knowing about God. You can, you can learn about him, but that might counteract your ability to grow in intimacy with him. And we want to admit that there is a danger here. We don't want to be walking theological eggheads. We don't want to be able to stroll around talking about justification and sanctification and all these big 12-syllable words and, and not have a relationship with the God who authored them. That's true. But to claim that we have to choose, that's the false dichotomy. To say that we have to choose between knowing about God and knowing God, that's, that's the wrong choice. We don't have to choose. In fact, as we come to first, or the, the, this first verse in Second Peter again, it seems that Peter is saying that they're very much connected. We can grow in intimacy with God as we learn more about him. And we don't want to pit those two things against one another because the Bible doesn't pit those two things against one another. And we know this just from our personal relationships in this world. My knowing a lot of facts about my wife does not guarantee intimacy with her. But if I do want an intimate relationship with my wife, I better learn some things about her, right? So we know that these two things can work in concert with one another, and that's what Peter is inviting us to as children of God. If we want to grow in maturity... We must lean on the resources that God himself has provided, namely, in this case, his self-revelation. Here I am. This is what I'm like. This is what I've said. This is how I've acted. This is how I will act. And we grow in our understanding of him. 
and avenues for intimacy grow and grow. So to put it simply, if we want to grow, we must know God. And if we want to know God, we prayerfully read his written word, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit and which points to the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Now that's the first resource that he's given us in verse 3. He showed himself to us, his self-revelation. The second resource that he's given to us so that we can pursue maturity as believers is found in verse 4, and it's, and it's God's promises. Okay? Very much connected to the first, but distinct at the same time. Verse 4. Through these, what are these? Well, if we back up, we see it's his own glory and goodness. Through these things, his glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So we have here a God who cannot lie. We know that throughout Scripture, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, for example, God cannot lie. And we have this God who cannot lie making promises to us, sometimes promises to a nation, sometimes promises to other people, sometimes promises to believers in general. And he's made these promises to us. And Peter is saying we are invited as the children of God to live as though these promises are true. To live as if they are actually going to come true. To live as though the God who started something in us will see it to completion. That's a promise. To live as though he will never leave or forsake us. We're invited to live in light of these promises, these precious, great promises that he's given us. We're invited to live in such a way that that we know that we will spend eternity with him, embodied in resurrected, glorified bodies on a new heaven and new earth. It's a promise that we will walk one day into his eternal kingdom. Promise. And we are to live in light of those things. How can we not mature if those promises which we know to be true, uttered by a God who cannot lie, shape the way we walk? We will certainly be mature. We will certainly grow. And this is a resource that Peter says... God himself, by his power, has given to us. So I've showed you who I am. I've told you about myself. I've given you my great promises that you can cling to. We also know that these promises that God has given us, this this God who cannot lie is the same God that indwells us as believers. Same God. And he is working in us to, to conform us into the image of Christ. And as we do that, as we become more like Christ, we are participating in the divine nature progressively, and anticipating it to be so in glorification, and we are escaping at the same time the corruption of this world. Promises he's given us, resources that he's given us, so that we can accomplish this pursuit of maturity in the Christian life. So living as if God's promises are actually true, along with increasing our knowledge of God's self-revelation, it moves each of us away from spiritual infancy and toward maturity. And again, according to verse 3, we've been given all we need for godly life. He's provided everything we need. Sufficient. That doesn't mean we use them, though. I was raised in a pretty good home. My parents gave me everything I needed for maturation. Everything. Sufficient. This is what you need to grow up, Josiah. This is what you need to mature into a a decent human being. Whether they succeed or not, that's up to you. But they, They gave us, they gave me everything. But that doesn't mean I could have taken it. That doesn't mean I had to take it. I could have 
looked past all that sufficient provisions and said, that's nice that you want to feed me. I don't think I need food. You know, that's nice that you want to give me these opportunities to grow, but I don't need those things. So it's up to us to take on those provisions. God has given us the resources, whether we use them or not. That's a whole other matter. And we get to that as we go on in this text. He's given us all we need to mature. And the question becomes, will we take advantage of the resources that he's provided? And now he shifts when we come to verse 5. And Peter shifts. It's a call to maturity. He says, God has given you all you need. Now let's look at the road to maturity. Let's look at the picture of what it looks like to pursue maturity. In verse 5, he says, for this very reason. Well, for what reason? For the reason that God has provided everything for us. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith. Stop there. Notice the call for intentional effort on the part of Christians. Because of what God has provided, we are to strive in faith. Faith is the baseline. Faith has got to be there. Faith is the, the, the line on which we hang the ornaments of our maturation, but it has to be there. We, we take up those resources in faith. Right? I believe. I believe those promises. That's faith. I believe that he's revealed himself. That's faith. And on that faith, we hang these things. But it takes effort, doesn't it? Strive. Make every effort, he says. This isn't a a Jesus-take-the-wheel mentality. This isn't something where we just hands off and he'll do what he's going to do in my life. This isn't an excuse to hide behind an oversimplistic understanding of God's sovereignty. Sometimes we do that. I'm tempted to to do that. It's hard to mature. I would rather just say, God's sovereign... He'll do what he wants to do in my life. I can't do anything about it. But I don't think Peter's giving us that option here. He's saying make every effort in light of what God has given you, how he's equipped you with the resources he's provided. Make every effort. And just a cursory reading of the Apostle Paul again seems to indicate that Paul understood this. I beat myself. I discipline myself. I strive after the reward. There seems to be some intentionality in Paul. I don't think I understand sovereignty more than Paul did. So there's this, these two things are working together. And Paul is saying, and Peter is joining him and saying, we are to strive after this maturation. And so as he continues, we see what it is we're to strive after. What does this look like? What does this road include as we pursue maturity? Verse 5 again, for this reason, I make every effort, or make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, mutual affection. And to mutual affection, love. Peter is not saying here that you need to master one before you can move on to the next. That's not the structure of this text. It's more a stylistic emphasis of all of them. This is the picture. This is the road we get to travel on the way to maturity. These are the things we are to make every effort to add to our lives in faith. And just so that we're all on the same page, let's understand what these mean. This is the picture for you and I, brothers and sisters. This is what we are to pursue. This is what we are to strive after. Goodness. Moral excellence. Uprightness. Pursue that. Knowledge again comes up. Knowledge refers to a growing understanding of God. So we see here that that's not only a resource he's given us, but it's also a goal as well. At the same time, it's both and. Self-control is is self-mastery and and disciplined moderation. We're to pursue perseverance. 
which is the ability to endure these things in spite of adversity. The pursuit of godliness is the growing reflection of the divine character. I want to be more like God. I'm going to pursue that. Mutual affection is the thoughtful consideration of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Love refers to the self-sacrificial love that God in Christ Jesus showed us. It says, this is what it looks like. This is what you're striving for. This is what you're to make every effort to pursue things like these. This is the road to maturity that Peter is providing for us. A picture of what we'll see developing, our, developing in our lives when by God's grace we grow up in faith, trusting his power and resources. Have you ever wanted something so bad that it consumes your thoughts and drives your actions? I can't help but picture here as I read this text, and some of you haven't seen it, and good for you, Rocky IV, you know, when he's got to fight that mountain of a Russian boxer, and to train, he flies up into Siberia, and he's training, running up mountains, all this crazy stuff, but at the beginning of that epic training montage, there's a scene where Rocky takes a picture of his opponent, puts it on his mirror, and stares at it, and every day he wakes up and he stares at it, that picture that motivates him, it drives him, it consumes his thoughts. In many ways, Peter here in verses 5 through 7 is giving us a picture of what we're pursuing. Saying, here it is. Put that on your mirror. May it it consume your thoughts. May it drive your actions. Get after this. Endure whatever you have to strive. Make every effort with the resources that God has given us to add to your faith these things. We must work diligently toward these God-given goals. We must long for maturity and the characteristics of maturity, so much that they consume our thoughts and drive our actions. Now, as we come to the last little section of this paragraph, we see that Peter has now given us the resources and the road or the picture of maturity. But now we we turn a corner corner, and he, he provides us some results. So he says, if you take up these resources and you take up the mantle and go after maturity, Christian maturity, growth in Christlikeness, if you take this up, here are some results that you can expect. This is what you will see in your life. And he gives us three. The first is present usefulness in verses 8 and 9. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, if they're growing in you, it doesn't matter if you start at ground zero or you've been following the Lord for 50 years, wherever you are, if you are seeing these increase in your life, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Again, this is a call for present usefulness to the Lord. When we mature in the faith, when we grow up as we should, we become increasingly useful to him. To stay immature is to handcuff our usefulness because it's to voluntarily remain vision-impaired, and an immaturity. Think of physiotherapy. If you've ever been to physiotherapy before, you have an ache or a pain, you go in, they check you out, they do some exercises, and then they usually give you some assignments, right? Some homework to do. And in my experience, they oftentimes seem really small and insignificant. They do this every day or something, and it's supposed to help. It's, it's really minute. But when you do it, over time, you get useful again. Your shoulder returns to its use. You grow in that ability to use whatever part of the body was hurting. If you don't, well, it will remain useless or less than it could be. That's the picture here. 
grow in maturity that you may grow in usefulness. When we don't move down the road to maturity, we lose sight of what God is doing, what he's like, what he's promised, and even what he's done in our own lives. If we, if we stall out in maturity, we sometimes forget the grace of God in my own life. You know, I'll, I'll just not think about it. I become increasingly blind to the goodness of God all around me if I don't pursue maturity like he's calling me to. But the flip side is graciously true as well. If we dedicate ourselves to maturity, as Peter is calling us to, using the resources that God has provided, the opposite becomes true. We, we become useful and fruitful for him. I haven't met a single Christian that would say, I don't want to be useful for God. No, we, we all want that. We all want to be useful. And Peter's saying, well, here's how it's done. Grow up in the faith. Pursue these things with every effort, like his promises are actually true. Like these things are actually going to happen. Now, the second result that he gives us, the first was this present usefulness. That's motivating. I want to be useful. I know you want to be useful as well. So we want to pursue maturity. The second is in verse 10, and it's, it's this growing assurance. As we grow up, as we mature, there's a growing assurance that takes place. Therefore, in light of all of this, my brothers and sisters, make every effort, there it is again, the call for effort, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. So just to remind ourselves, who are we talking to here? We're talking to believers. Peter's writing to believers, right? He's writing to Christians. We learned that in verses 1 and 2. So he's not saying that the pursuit of maturity secures our salvation. That's not what he's saying at all. He's writing to people that are saved. He's saying, grow up now. You're saved, grow up. Peter's saying that, that as we grow in maturity and as the characteristics that he listed develop in our lives, we are displaying for the world what otherwise cannot be seen. We saw this in the book of James as we went through a little while ago. You can't see my salvation. You can't see my new heart. You can't see any of that. But as I grow in maturity, I put it on display, in a sense, to the people around me. I make visible the invisible new heart that I've been given. I, I make tangible the intangible assurance of salvation that is rooted in nothing other than the promise of a faithful God and loving Savior. So in many ways, think of it this way, very practically. One of the most loving things that you can do for the people in your life that love you and that also know the Lord is to mature in the faith. Because you are showing them that you are saved. You are displaying your salvation to the people around you that know you best. And as you grow up, as you mature by God's grace, we are growing in that assurance. We are displaying it. We are displaying it for the world around us. What a result of growing in maturity. I know that we know people like that. I think that as we read this text, we are thinking about people we know in our life that we want to be like, that are mature, godly people. Now, how do we know that? Because we see their fruit. We see what's happening in their life. Say, I want to be patient like them. I want to be godly like them. I want to have self-control like them, whatever the case may be. So as we grow in maturity, we are growing in assurance as well. Now, the third result that Peter gives us here is found in the closing verse of our section this morning. And that is future abundance. A future abundance. Not only do we have a present usefulness as we mature and a growing assurance, but we have this future abundance. Verse 11. And you will, future tense, receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to understand that while all Christians will one day enter the eternal future kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all 
will receive the same welcome. That comes as a shock to some of us. We haven't taught this, been taught this very often. But not all of us will receive the same welcome. Some, some will be given eternal rewards for their earthly faithfulness, depending on how faithful and mature they pursued the things of God on this earth. We learn in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that every Christian will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not a judgment seat to determine heaven or hell. This is a judgment seat to see what we did with what we were given. And what we did in the flesh will be burnt up, and what we did for the Lord will shine. We will be rewarded accordingly. This is why Jesus can say in the Sermon on the Mount, store up for yourself treasure where? In heaven. Don't, don't store it up down here where moth and rust destroy and eat it up and, and it withers away. Store it up there where it's imperishable. These are rewards we get for being faithful in this life. And as we go along this path to maturity, we are anticipating a rich future entrance, according to Peter, into the kingdom of God. So we have these promised results as Peter closes this section. This present usefulness for the Lord. This assurance, demonstration of our salvation that is otherwise invisible. And this future abundance that we are awaiting. These should motivate us. should stir us up to, yeah, I want to pursue maturity. I want those things. I want to, to grow in maturity so I can have these and other things. Recently I read a book on Christian service, in which the author wrote very wisely, I might add, he said, I don't serve the Lord so that he will love me more. I serve the Lord because he couldn't love me more. What a difference. And I think we could substitute service with the pursuit of Christian maturity. I don't want to grow up in Christ so that he'll love me more. I want to grow up in Christ because he could not love me more. I want to know him. I want to live in his promises. I want to honor him in this world. I want to reflect his son to the world. So as we know him more, you can see how this loops around. As we know him more, it spurs us on to maturity. As we mature and we know him more, it just goes around and around. We go in a beautiful spiral. God doesn't want us to be Christians who only look like adults on the outside. He wants us to be Christians who are mature on the inside in our heart. He doesn't want us to be mere spiritual infants on milk, but mature children of God. He desires for us to be mature, and so much so that he's provided us the resources, the roadmap to get there, and the results that we can expect. And it's a beautiful thing. And in this text, Peter is calling for each and every one of us to grow up. He's calling for us to grow up. And just like a parent, when they would say that to a child, it's heard in different ways, depending on where the child's at, right? If the child is a diligent child, they may hear that as encouraging and and empowering. If the child is rebellious, grow up may sound harsh and scolding. If the child is apathetic, it may come across as encouraging, affirming, or inviting. And same with us. We've laid this text bare before us today, and it sits upon us as the people of God. This is God's word to us, and we feel the burden of it. And we know God is calling us to grow up. And depending on where we're at with our walk with the Lord, we will hear that differently from God. You know, if we are diligent Christians, if we are on fire for the Lord, if we hear this and, yes, I want that. I want to grow up. I want to be mature. This is just adding logs to the fire of our flame. It's encouraging. Yes, I want to grow up. If we're walking with the Lord right now, but if we're honest, things have gotten cold lately. 
I remember a time when it was exciting. I remember a time when I was on fire. I remember a time when I wanted nothing more than to mature in Christ. I remember that. But for whatever reason, now I'm more apathetic. I'm going through the motions, but I'm not so sure that I'm being as diligent as I should. If that's us here today, we should hear this command from God with a little bit more of a rebuke. Grow up. Wake up. Grow up. Let it shake off the rust of our spiritual lives. Then no doubt there are people in here that are not only diligent or apathetic, but they are flat-out rebellious. You're a believer. You know God. You've been saved by his grace. But for one reason or another, you now find yourself shaking your fist in the face of the Almighty. Maybe he disappointed you. Maybe he frustrated you. Maybe he didn't give you something you wanted. Maybe he hurt you, or so you think. But for whatever reason, you are literally or figuratively crossing your arms at this two-word command from God right now saying, grow up. All the same, it's the same two-word command to you. Grow up. Grow up. Who do you think you are, God says. I'm God, you're not. Grow up. So you see, we have this text that lays upon us, and just like God says, it's a sword, right? It cuts us. It rebukes, it corrects, it, it encourages where need be. And it does it across the plane of everyone in here. No matter where we're at in our relationship with God, the same two-word command lays upon us, it's time to grow up. And he's given us everything we need. We have no excuse. He's shown us what we are to pursue. And he says, and here's what you get if you do. And no matter where we are, we hear those words and we say, Lord, help us. Soften my heart if need be. Encourage me if need be. Whatever I need, help me to mature in Christ for your glory and for my good and for the good of the people around me. This isn't all bad news. This is a beautiful invitation by a gracious God to call us to himself into the life abundant he wants us to lead and toward the life abundant we will definitely one day lead. He's saying, come to me. Enjoy this life. Grow up and experience me like you have never experienced me before. Let's be a church committed to growing up and helping one another grow up together. Let's pray for that now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this cutting command at times. But it's one that we need. No parent would think of raising a child and never disciplining them, never calling to question some of their decisions, never correcting them. And in the same way, you don't leave your spiritual children without rebuke, without correction, without strong words. So first and foremost, we want to say thank you. Thank you for being that type of a God. A God who loves us and is for us and wants us to experience himself to the fullest. And you called us to, to, to maturity graciously and you've given us what we need. Father, we thank you for that. But we ask for your help. Because no matter where we're at, and certainly all across the spectrum are, are represented in this room, we need your help to do that. So we pray that you continue to use your, your word, even this week as we leave here, to, to cut and remind us and, and, and encourage us and lift us up, whatever needs to happen, Father, that we may be spurred on to grow up in Christ for your glory. And Father, we would be remiss if we did not also take a moment and pray for those in our congregation to whom this does not apply, because they aren't in the family. We know that we are all sinners, fallen short of your standard, of your glorious perfection. We know that. The smallest sin does that. 
And Father, we need to be reconciled to you if we were to spend eternity with you. But we can't do that in and of ourselves. We need your help. And so you sent your son to die on the cross in our place. And in our place condemned he stood. While we we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he rose from the dead victoriously. And by simply putting our faith in him, in his life, death, and resurrection, we are transported, Father. That's the promise of Scripture. A God who cannot lie has made this promise to us. That if we trust him, we are transported from death to life. And that can never be taken away. We have eternal life. And so, Father, we pray for those in our midst who have heard that perhaps, or maybe have never heard that. But they are far from you. We pray that even this week, they would hear the gospel like that in a new way. That you would illuminate it for them, that you would draw them to yourself. Father, we want to be a church that exists to exalt you, to equip one another, and to evangelize the lost. And we know we need to grow up to accomplish that. And so we ask that you would do that in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.